Some call the 1970s and 80s the golden age of gaming, when Pac-Man and Space Invaders lined arcade floors. But the modern gaming world continues to surprise and delight. While players and spectators can now stream, download, and queue up games easier than ever before, the heart of gaming remains true to its core, capturing a childlike sense of nostalgia and connecting people to a lost sense of fun, and with each other as well. Today, a look inside the ever-evolving billion-dollar industry from the people who built it, and a glimpse into gaming's wild, innovative future. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about High Score, the documentary series from Netflix, highlighting visionaries who shaped the video games you love. Through stories from forgotten heroes of the industry, we learn how a world of escape and inclusivity was created, and ultimately sustained. Our second story takes a different spin on games. A surprise offering from Netflix's Floor is Lava has managed to recapture lost youth by turning a child's game into an adult's competitive sport. Its creators credit the show's popularity to one powerful emotion, nostalgia. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, a look at the visionaries who shaped the video game industry through stories you've never heard before. Long before the internet, a handful of visionaries reimagined the world. We felt that we were creating a world-changing technology. It is a sick video game. Shame on people that produce that trash. <laughs> I made the worst game of all time. What we did back then was ahead of its time, but the time is now. A new documentary series from Netflix and Great Big Story names the visionaries who shaped the video game industry, including those you may not have heard about. High Score traces the period deemed the golden age of video games. It starts with 1978's Space Invaders and ends with the 1993 release of Doom. The gaming pioneers that shaped the industry illustrate how much video games have always been made by and played by people of all colors and identities. High Score aims to tell their forgotten stories. Stories from Rebecca Heinemann, a trans woman who's the first national esports champion. When I played video games back in the 80s, I never believed I was actually any good at the game. In this virtual world where I was mowing down rows of aliens and ignoring the world around me, it was the only place that I was able to find solace and peace. Or Gerald Lawson, the black engineer who invented the Channel F, the first console to use cartridges. However, his groundbreaking story was eclipsed by another company. No other company offers you as many different video game cartridges as Atari. When Atari came out with interchangeable cartridges, Lawson's story was lost. High score aims to remind us. And then there's the gaming business. Steve Golson, who along with Doug McRae, became forever known as the MIT dropouts who created Ms. Pac-Man. After dabbling in the arcade business as a side job in the late 1970s, they figured out the key to gaming revenue. Doug McRae recalls the posing of this question. We said, would it be really nice if there was software which added new things and made it a little bit harder and could really help the revenue stream of it? Steve Golston recalls the answer. So we started making enhancement kits, which modifies an existing video game and makes it more challenging to the player. Because it's more challenging to the player, 
their games are shorter and the operator makes more money. And that's the real key. The operator's making more money. That was just the beginning of a billion dollar industry. And there's no shortage of forgotten stories like these when it comes to the people behind video games. Here to talk more about them is Inverse's Eric Francisco, who also spoke to the director of High Score for even more insight. Hey, Eric, welcome back. Hey, Tanya, good to be here. One of the things that jumped out at me at the start of this documentary were the things that get people into gaming. You know, the ability to control the TV, forgetting the world around us, that state of flow. Do you think that was part of the initial spark in terms of what hooked gaming onto a culture? Oh, absolutely. It was the first time uh, we're going back to like the days of asteroids and space invaders and uh, even space war, which is considered one of the first video games. We're talking about the first time that you're given a fantasy fulfillment. A, you're the first time you're, t- you're talking about uh, just kind of like this uh, fantasy control. You're the star of your own narrative. You're the star of your own, you know, space movie, typically for, for a lot of these games. The interactivity that people had never seen before in any kind of piece of media before, it was that groundbreaking. Just the fact that like you can control the avatar, even if it was just a tiny little dot, that made all the difference for, I think, the first wave of video game players. And just to bring it back to Space Invaders, uh, that was a really interesting look at the start of it all or, you know, when that era began and really just started to pop. And it seemed like the start of esports in a really interesting way, you know, watching people play video games, the competitive nature of it. Do you think that that was also what made Space Invaders so essential to the industry? Space Invaders is very much a crucial part of the gaming industry. Uh, It's hard to really draw a line between that and today's esports. I mean, yes, you can draw the line and you absolutely should. It's just hard because for so long, esports was not taken seriously. It was kind of just kind of like, oh, a video game competition. How how quaint. Uh, but yes, you know, Rebecca Heinemann is the first esports champion in the world, pretty much, because she was she was the first one to compete in a national video game competition. Uh, the directors who I interviewed for uh, High Score, they said it themselves. They told me, uh, one of the reasons why esports took so long to really get off the ground was because people couldn't wrap their heads around a competition for video games. The earliest video game competitions was just like, oh, it looks like a computer club, you know? So hard to say, but uh, we absolutely need to recognize the contributions of the first like Space Invaders champions and especially Rebecca Heinemann. Right. And Rebecca Heinemann was just one of the many stories told. It was a big theme throughout, you know, that personal layer, those personal stories that go hand in hand with telling the history of gaming. In speaking to the director, what was your sense of how important that was? Very important. What High Score does especially noteworthy uh, to my mind and, and what I wrote about is that there's a lot of unsung heroes in the industry who also come from marginalized backgrounds. Uh, there have been queer people, trans people, people of color, all walks of life who have helped shape the gaming industry. Uh, there's another gentleman that is profiled in High Score. His name is Gordon Bellamy. Uh, he's still active in the gaming industry today. One of his biggest contributions that is, that is shown in High Score is that in one of the early Madden games, Madden NFL 96, Madden NFL 96, I had to get that right. It was a whole thing in the, in the interview. <laughs> um, he was the first to uh, allow players to have black skin. 
that meant a lot to a lot of you know children playing Madden NFL, and then they actually get to create themselves in the game. Uh, that is huge. That uh, you you don't get games like Mass Effect, you don't get games like uh, Elder Scrolls without that kind of sort of contribution that Gordon Bellamy did in a sports game. And also, Gordon Bellamy himself uh, is uh, is a gay black man. Uh, and it's just like there has been so many people of these backgrounds who shaped gaming as we know it. And now they're starting to get some of their due. And hopefully, we'll find out more people. We don't. There's still so many names that we do not know whose names have been kind of lost to time. Hopefully, after documentaries like High Score, we'll find get to know uh, who these heroes are. Speaking of inclusivity, and, and another one of my favorite parts was the dawn of Pac-Man. I hadn't realized that it was an effort to include women, A, and that, and this is my absolute favorite part, that it derived from pizza. <laughs> I, I mean, gaming has never made more sense to me. Absolutely. In the documentary, they said that they wanted to appeal to uh, a female demographic. That game is just accessible for everyone. And again, because of our familiarity today in 2020, it's hard to be like, was it that revolutionary? Was it that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in, yeah, when, when Pac-Man debuted, it was this phenomenon. He was the early baby Yoda. He he was that character. People found him cute. They, they found this yellow ball with a moving mouth cute. Uh, in terms of being a game, yeah, again, I, I, it's it's difficult to understand it with 2020 eyes, but it's, it's incredible just how accessible that game was in a way that we can't even recognize it today. Yeah, it's so true. So as someone who covers this, who's entrenched in this world, um, do you think High Score gets to the heart of what it's all about? You know, why we love gaming, how much money we've given to it, um, how it grew into the entity that it is. What's your sense of how High Score is able to capture this? Definitely. It tells the evolution of gaming in a way that, again, I think we will all learn something from it. Um, I've been, of course, an experienced gamer. Uh, I learned a lot from this documentary. I think it touches on nostalgia in a way uh, that isn't just, you know, recalling our, uh, uh, isn't just, you know, watching old commercials on YouTube. In, in this difficult time, as everyone says, uh, I think we could all use a little like reminders of of an innocence. And I think we all have, uh, we all have our own memories of video games. Uh, and High Score does its, is, is a phenomenal way of revisiting those memories along the way. For sure. Listeners can check out more at inverse.com. Eric, thanks so much. Hey, Tanya, thanks for having me. Netflix's Floor is Lava is an undeniable callback to a childhood game that feels warm, fuzzy, and familiar in uncertain and scary times. Up next, how a childhood game became a must-see spectacle that involves a new spin on teamwork, creativity, and strategy in order to win. It's the hottest game show in history. dare to make it to the exit without falling in. The team with the most points wins $10,000 and gets to meet me, Rutledge Wood. Hello. Make it from the entrance to the exit and your team earns a point. Fall in and you're out. Netflix's Floor is Lava operates on the concept that needs little introduction to anyone who's been five. It's the primetime version of the game where you jump from coffee table to couch without allowing your feet to touch the ground. It's intended to stir up warm feelings of nostalgia, and if the show's metrics are any indication, it worked. 
In June 2020, Floor is Lava became one of the most watched shows on Netflix, making it the first time a game show has ever done so. Maybe it's because in the U.S., sports are still for the most part canceled, or maybe fuzzy and familiar feelings are exactly what America needed during uncertain and scary times. Half slapstick spectacle, half strategy game, the best players mix athleticism and creative thinking. Take Luan, a breakout player from the show who famously spotted a button on top of a fake Apollo capsule. He eventually made his way to that button and opened up a whole new avenue for his teammates, making him one of the show's most notably successful players. Here's how it went down. If Luan can hit that red button, it'll open up more options for him and his team. Okay, I'm going to press this. I think that's closer if I were to go from that rock. I'm just do it, bro. Hey, Gerald, if he gets it, he can live with us, bro. Jordan knowing how to push Luan's buttons. You got me? I got you. You got me? Yeah. Hey, for Nipsey, bro, for Nipsey. The marathon continues! That's Luan, small step for Luan, one giant leap for a new apartment. This moment is just one of many, which proves that the show is more than just a sense of adventure and fun. There's a method to the silly madness. It actually takes teamwork, creativity, and strategy to win. That's according to Inverse's Emma Batuel, who got the inside scoop on all things Flores Lava and joins us right now. Hey, Emma, how's it going? I'm good. Hey, Tanya, how are you? Good. So this is obviously, I mean, I think we all played this as a kid. It it truly does seem universal. And like with most things, you know, especially during times of stress, people tend to gravitate toward the comfort of nostalgia. Do you think that's a big part of what's happening here? Yeah, I think that Flora's Lava is definitely sort of playing upon this kind of like escapism vibe a lot of us are feeling right now. It's simultaneously wacky and strange and just like out of out of control like the the host Rutledge Wood when I spoke to him he called it a pinch of night at the museum with a dash of your crazy aunt's attic so it has these crazy things that feel really like not reality which is kind of nice right now and also this sort of warm fuzzy nostalgia of this childhood game that we all played Um, and when I talked to Wood about whether or not he's played the game, he was like, yeah, of course. He has daughters that he plays the game with all the time. And now he's just seen lots of people sort of responding to it. And I mean, it was number one on Netflix for, I think, a week or so in in June. So it does seem to be resonating with a lot of people. Another thing actually that is kind of was striking is some people play the Flora's Crocodiles, which was not how I played the game, but apparently that's something that gets brought up a lot too, is that some people played it that way. Ah, I haven't heard that. Another interesting part to this is this mix of sports with a different sense of fun. It's funny to watch people wipe out. It always has been. But as wacky as this this show is, what's interesting is how much strategy is actually involved. Yeah, that's one of the things that Wood brought up a lot. So when they were sort of in the process of making the show, they wanted to sort of balance this idea that, I mean, if you look at sort of athletic-based game shows in the past, you have shows like American Ninja Warrior, um, where when you look at these people, they're like, insane athletes like most of us could never do anything that they're doing the thing about the floors lava is they want to make it look like you could just get off of your couch and do it and win tomorrow that's not actually what it's like to play the game when you're on set there are any number of ways to get across the lava and you actually can't see a lot of the course from the perspective of the players which is something that i thought was quite striking so 
what seems like a really obvious move to us is actually not obvious to them. So it requires a lot more creative thinking and strategy than you would think watching the show. And that's kind of on purpose. So there's always, you know, some kind of method to all this craziness. According to the people behind the show, who um, who's able to pull this off? It's not clear cut, you know, because you see athletic people fail. You see smart people fail. Is there a secret to pulling this off or at least some good strategy when we're, you know, practicing at home as quite frankly, some of us probably are at this point. What should we be doing? Yeah, I think that the best strategy that Wood points to uh, is definitely, I think, teamwork. Because, and I think, as like we were saying, and he put it pretty well, um, you have these people who are heroes in the gym who still you know, fly off the face of your kitchen table or whatever in the middle of the lava. So the people who tend to be the most successful are people who work together in teams. Um, so if you actually watch the episode where the Mama's Boys compete and the Michael Jordan of the floor is lava, um, which is sort of a, a thing that we do at the Not Sports column where we sort of crown the champion of these weird sports, um, was a player named Luan who uh, was on the Mama's Boys team anyway, but they were exceptionally good at teamwork. They didn't actually all make it across the lava, but that's the approach that you probably want to take is sort of communicating with one another, letting each other know where you are, and that'll kind of help you set yourself up for success, whether or not you're sort of an athletic prodigy. This is all part of Inverse's Not Sports. It's an occasional series. If you have something that's not a sport, but almost like a sport that you'd like to see featured, you can head to inverse.com to find out how to fill out a suggestion. Emma just might take you up on it. In the meantime, Emma, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Head to Inverse.com to read more about all things modern gaming. You can click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening. <laughs>